Why don't we welcome Mike as he comes on up? Good evening. As we go on through Mark's Gospel, uh, we come to the title, Mark's Gospel, Radical Inclusion. And uh, amongst the different things that I do in retirement, I do a little bit of supply teaching. And there was one delightful uh, student I encountered earlier this year who uh, said, uh, and I partially quote, because there are some adjectives that I'll leave out, um, that unless I stopped looking at them, they would smash my face in with the chair that they had in their hand. Now, that student, when I went in the next day, was no longer part of the school community uh, because of exclusion. Uh, and we understand those of us who are parents or are students, uh, exclusion is being removed from the community, hopefully for a short period of time. Inclusion is being within the community. And when Jesus teaches us about radical inclusion, he's talking about who it is that can be within the community of God's people. And I, you're, you're not daft. You know that the answer to that question is anyone can be within the kingdom of God's people. But I want to try and help us this evening move a little bit from the theory uh, towards uh, the practice and maybe the practice in our own lives. Radical means going right back to the basics and the most important things. So in terms of religion, what are the foundational things for the claim that God in his wonderful love welcomes all of us. Now here's a, a little bit of uh, stuff on Mark because we had just a few verses each week when we started out on this, but now we have a man-sized chunk. Is that appropriate? Can you say that these days? You have a, a large-sized chunk of, of Matthew, four passages, one after another. I'm not going to force you to read all of them, but it might be helpful for us just to get a very quick picture of how Mark's gospel was put together. Um, I say that because we tend to assume that a book is written by somebody who sits down and writes a book. But uh, Mark's Gospel, according to a guy called Papias, who was around from around, well, he was writing from around 110 to 120. Uh, Mark was a buddy of Peter. Peter was the fisherman. Uh, they both ended up in Rome. Peter told everything he knew about Jesus to Mark, who wrote it down. But Papias wrote... Mark indeed, since he was the interpreter of Peter, wrote accurately, but not in order. The things either said or done by the Lord, as much as he remembered, for he neither heard the Lord nor followed him, but afterwards. So Mark, writing down some things just as he remembered, aired in nothing. He was careful not to omit things or to falsify them. I couldn't find the quotation. I think it might have been Clement of Alexandra. You can correct me afterwards if I'm wrong. Who said that Mark wrote the memoirs of Peter, but his geography was rubbish. And those who have been scholars looking at the Gospels recognize there are some problems there. So, if we look at the way in which the gospel is put together, we find that there are three basic chunks of Mark. There's an introduction, there's a whole bunch of stories, and then there's the last week of the life of Jesus. And the last week of the life of Jesus is chapters 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, and 16, a whopping great chunk. It's not proportional. Uh, and the last week is a narrative. Uh, we would understand that the first Christians told the story, remembered the story, and passed it on. But the interesting thing about the stories is that they have every sign of being handed down as individual stories. So instead of a long narrative, you might picture a sequence of dots. And these have been joined together, as Papias wrote, by Mark to make a story. 
And that means when uh, we look at the passage that we have today, it's uh, Mark 2, 13 to 3, 6. Um, do have a Bible open if that's going to be helpful to you. If you'd rather close your eyes and stare into the lights, that's acceptable as well. But each of the stories, if you look at it with a sort of, uh, little bit of fresh eyes, you'll see that they're stories that were handed down on their own. And each of the four stories that we have this evening finishes with a punchline with something clever or something memorable that Jesus has said, uh, which, as it were, forms the climax of that particular saying. So we are in Galilee, in the uh, north part of the Galilee. First picture shows us the seashore uh, where uh, Capernaum, which is the village where Jesus lives, meets the sea. Uh, next picture shows us the countryside of the um, Mount of Beatitudes. So our first story is the call of Matthew by the sea, as we saw. Then, then there's a story walking through um, different parts of countryside and picking up ears of corn. So that sort of place. The setting is Capernaum, which is where Jesus made his hometown for his ministry in the north. And if you go to Capernaum, there are some very good tours I could recommend. Um, if you go to Capernaum, you'll see there a house, uh, which it by very, very strong uh, commendation is the house where Jesus stayed and the house where the man on the, the stretcher was let down through the roof, the house of Peter's mother-in-law. So that's the setting. One thing before we look at the story of Matthew, and I have a, a deep and incisive theological resource to help you to enter into that story. Um, some of you may or may not be interested in geography. I was reflecting with somebody earlier this morning. I had a friend who was a geography teacher and one of his little hobbies was to try and get a really mean report in, just one every year, because the head teacher reads all of the reports. And, and it was his little game that he'd try and put one in that would get through. And the best one he managed was on one girl's report for geography. It's a miracle she finds her way home at the end of the day. So you, you may not value geography, but if you can glimpse in the distance the map that we're going to put up on the screen now, you'll recognize England top left and the Med in the middle, and the right-hand side is Israel and Palestine. And if you can trace where the lines are on that, they are the lines that were the trade routes in the time of Jesus in the Roman Empire. If we go a little bit closer, uh, you can see Israel-Palestine, big blue bit at the bottom is the Dead Sea, smaller blue bit at the top is the Sea of Galilee. You may just be able to see that one of the important trade routes comes down, curls round the top of the Sea of Galilee, and then goes down to the bottom left, or as the geographers would say, the southwest. So if you wanted to shift goods by land in the Roman Empire, and you wanted to go, say, from Greece by land to Egypt, you would go past the top of the Sea of Galilee. Or if you wanted to import from India, uh, you would come over the top of the Sea of Galilee because of where the mountain ranges are and the deserts are. And the Romans weren't daft in terms of raising taxes. Matthew, the tax collector, wasn't on a PIYE thing in terms of what your income from your earnings was. The taxes that he was uh, getting his head around and his pockets filled by, uh, those taxes were the taxes that we're currently embroiled in discussion about with Brexit, which are the taxes that are put on goods as they go in and out of a country. So that is why you find Matthew, a tax, tax collector, on the uh, edge of the Sea of Galilee. And this is our first story. So uh, I, I know this is going to strain some of you intellectually as a theological exercise, but try and use this resource to get into the story.
Jesus was in Capernaum, and he was walking along when he saw a tax collector named Matthew sitting at his tax collector's booth. Tax collectors were hated by everyone because many people thought they were cheaters and sinners. But Jesus saw this man and said, follow me and be my disciple. Me? Yeah, you. So Matthew got up, left everything, and followed him. Later, Matthew held a banquet in his home with Jesus as a guest of honor. Many of Matthew's fellow tax collectors and other guests also ate with them. But the Pharisees and their teachers of religious law complained to Jesus' disciples. Why do you eat and drink with such scum? When Jesus heard this, he told them, healthy people don't need a doctor. Sick people do. Then he added, now go on and learn the meaning of this scripture. I want you to show mercy, not offer sacrifices. For I have come to call not those who think they are righteous, but those who know they are sinners. So Matthew went on to be one of Jesus' twelve disciples and followed him throughout his time on earth. He even wrote a book in the Bible about Jesus' time on earth, and he served God for the rest of his life. I, I can vouch for the fact that every pixel is there in the original Greek. Um, so, uh, three hooks to get into understanding this inclusion. And the first hook is the invitation, an inclusive invitation. Um, Matthew was excluded for political reasons. Many of you will be aware that in the time of Jesus, the country Israel was um, occupied by Roman soldiers and uh, Jewish people didn't like that. They didn't like having somebody else in their country and controlling them and telling them what they could do. Um, so the whole idea of having somebody who works to collect taxes from Jewish people to hand them over to the Roman occupiers was not a popular one at all. And so everybody hated him. He was also excluded for religious reasons because from a Jewish point of view, doing business with the Romans meant that you... Uh, were actually being tainted by the whole thing. So you were banned from the synagogue. You weren't allowed to go into the synagogue. If there was a Jewish court of law and they needed witnesses to say what had happened or what had not happened, if you were a tax collector, you weren't allowed in. Uh, and he was also hated for personal reasons, because not only were tax collectors taking people's money, but usually they took a little percentage for handling it that wasn't strictly part of the deal. They were ripping off people, taking more than the taxes that were due. So they were hated as well for personal reasons. So the long and the short of it is this, that if you were a tax collector, your only friends would be tax collectors. Uh, nobody else would have anything to do with you. Probably your wife hated you and your children wouldn't go near you. Uh, nobody would go near somebody who was a tax collector. And, of course, Jesus says to him, follow me. Jesus exercises radical inclusion. Jesus says, no matter what the background that you come from, uh, you are welcome to come into the kingdom. 
I didn't mention at the beginning, because you might have walked out, that you're going to have to do a little bit of work three times in the course of this address. And in a moment or so, I'm going to ask you a question about who we think might be excluded from the invitation of the gospel today. And I, I thought carefully about this. I thought I'd tell you about one or two of my Christian friends. I'll start with the three who are convicted paedophiles and on the sex offenders register. Um, one of them uh, was a teacher. Uh, I knew him professionally as a teacher. He was arrested and sent to prison for exposing himself to schoolgirls on a canal path on the way to school. By the way, none of these were in this church, just in case you're tempted to identify uh, the people involved. Um, he told me, uh, when we were discussing all of this in the run-up to the trial, he told me that uh, the girls just thought it was a laugh. I went to the court, and the stories the girls told in court were very different. Then there's another guy. He, he did time uh, for raping his granddaughter. I used to sit with him. Uh, there was a route to school outside his flat, and sometimes he would tell me what he would like to do with the very young schoolgirls who were going past um, outside. Uh, another of my friends who's a paedophile uh, was a Baptist minister. And we served together in the same town for a number of years, and then coincidentally served together quite close uh, for a number of years later on. He was a Baptist minister and also a magistrate, and um, babysitting two young boys at his friend's house in America. Uh, he committed a sexual offense against them and was sent to prison. Are they eligible for the kingdom? You know the theory. But to put your arms around them and embrace them as a friend, to express physically that God's welcome extends to them. What about my friends who've killed? Uh, there was one who um, was a pyromaniac. He was severely disturbed mentally. He liked setting fire to things. One evening, he went out and set fire to a tire depot that helped a little bit but he still felt he needed to set fire to something else. So he went down a street putting lighted paper through letterboxes. One of those houses had an elderly lady in upstairs. She died from smoke inhalation and from the fire. Uh, another person wasn't that close a friend, but um, I was preparing him and his fiancée for marriage. And uh, one day, being the astute pastor that I am, I, I said to the female fiancée, um, you just seem a little bit at odds this evening, is something troubling you? And she pointed to her fiancé and said, well, it could be because last week he threw a drug dealer off our balcony and killed him. Is God's kingdom for them? Um, I've only had a small number of friends who are prostitutes, and only one of them uh, a male prostitute serving men. Um, but I remember one guy, um, his speciality was not at the top end of the market. Uh, he had the worst teeth I've ever encountered in man or camel. Um, he had very poor personal hygiene, um, and, and I was his pastor, and I had to embrace him in love. Uh, so where are the limits? When I'm in school sometimes, I'll talk about forgiving 70 times 7. What can be forgiven? Who can be welcomed into the kingdom? Your question is this, who do you think might be excluded for this sort of reason today? And... How might the good news be brought to them? Uh, maybe uh, for some of them, you can go out with Adam and find a few there. But can you just talk to a friend, if you've got one, or otherwise somebody who's sat near to you, and, and just think for a couple of minutes, 
Who is there our society would exclude? How might we, how might you do something about it? Okay. Um, I hope, guys, you, you found some value in that. Uh, because most of us in our daily lives will cross paths somehow with somebody that perhaps others in society would count as excluded. There's just one thing I want to add to the issue of the wonderful invitation that Jesus gives to people uh, to be disciples. Uh, just notice what he says to Matthew. He doesn't say, now look, if you give this up, and you're willing to ever give it a darn good shot. And you put all your effort into it. And we do a review after six months to see how you're doing. I'll give you a try. Um, he doesn't say, you have sinned. He doesn't say, you're on your way to hell. He says, follow me. And when we are helping bring people to faith in Jesus, um, it's worth thinking carefully about what we're going to say to them. There are things that do need to be addressed, and I'll pick up on that in an illustration in a few more minutes' time. But um, I do notice that Jesus never said, you, can only come in, you need to come into the kingdom because you're destined for hell. Uh, Jesus didn't say that, so I don't. And, and I try not to set out too many rules, which actually brings us to the next question, which is the issue of interpretation, which, as far as I can see, is at the heart of two stories that come next in uh, this passage in Mark. The first of them is, when should you fast? And the second of them is, what can you do or can you not do on the Sabbath? So the first story, uh, we're told that those who followed John the Baptist fasted regularly, and the Pharisees fasted regularly, and they came and they said, um, why is it that you, Jesus, are not making sure that your disciples fast? And, of course, they were trying to find fault with him. The Old Testament only commands one fast, which is the fast for the Day of Atonement. After the exile, Jewish tradition added four more. There's a passage in Luke 18, Luke 18 verse 12, where uh, Jesus comments on the Pharisees fasting for two days a week. So there were people who fasted more often. And actually, fasting is something highly to be commended. Uh, I'm diabetic, and there's new research that says if you do a, an 18-hour fast twice a week, then you may actually lose all of your symptoms of diabetes and come off the medication. And on top of that, you will uh, uh, lose weight and, and become attractive to gorgeous babes and all sorts of things like that. So, yeah, I've, I've been on the low-carb diet for a while, and last week I did catch a glimpse of my toes for the first time, which was a real encouragement. Um, so fasting is a good thing, but arguing about it for religious reasons isn't. And what the Pharisees are saying to Jesus is, here are some extra rules that if you're any good at all at being a spiritual person, you ought to be following. If you want to be counted in the extra spiritual group of the elite, you need to do the sort of fasting that we do. And this is what Jesus is faced with. And what Jesus does is he broadens out the picture. 
And he points to a Jewish wedding. Jewish weddings are sources of immense joy and celebration. And he paints this word picture which alludes to his own ministry and how things will eventually turn out. And he says that when you're at the wedding, you don't fast. So when the Son of Man has come bringing good news, that's not a time for fasting. But notice that he doesn't say fasting is wrong. In fact, Jesus advocates fasting in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, when you fast, do it in such and such a way. So what is happening is Jesus is talking about how to interpret the instructions that you find in the Bible. And this is one of the things that has intrigued me most in my study in the last year. I just came, a friend of mine who's a lecturer at Bethlehem Bible College, I was talking with him, and he, um, he said, but have you ever seen this, that in Luke chapter 10, uh, when somebody who's a teacher of the law comes to Jesus and he says, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? Jesus says to him, what does the law say and how do you read it? Not just what does the law say, but also how do you read it? Because, of course, in Jewish tradition, uh, scholars would debate, this is what it says in the Torah, but does it mean this or does it mean that? And Jesus follows in that tradition of saying, okay, there is one way of looking at the Torah, there is one way of looking at law, but maybe here's another one as well. And that is what he does in this case, and it's also what he does in the second case, regarding the practice in the time, I've, I've never done this, but apparently if you're walking on a cornfield, you can pick up ears of corn or wheat or whatever that stuff on the top of the stalk is, and, and you can crumble it up in your hand and you can eat it and it's a little light nourishment until you get to Greg's. Um, so uh, what, what happens then is Jesus and his disciples are doing this but they're doing it on the Sabbath and as everyone knows Jewish people are not allowed to do work on the Sabbath. Uh, so yet again here are religious people saying here are the rules you need to follow if you're going to be super spiritual like we are. Don't just follow the basic bog-standard Sabbath-keeping laws, but these are the details that you need to do. Not even getting a little bit of grain in your hand and eating it could possibly be acceptable. So Jesus broadens the picture. And he goes to a passage of scripture that actually was a problem for Jewish scholars. In 1 Samuel 21, David and his band of merry men uh, are off to do a little bit of battle and they need sustenance and they pop into where the bread that is only to be eaten by the priests is and uh, eat it. So the law says you don't eat it. And Jesus comes up with his saying about um, uh, man not being made uh, for the Sabbath. But notice that Jesus still affirms the Sabbath. He still talks about the need that each of us has to have time to uh, have downtime, uh, to simply be with God. And so what do we have here? Again, we have radical inclusion. Uh, Jesus is saying, regarding the question of work, regarding the question of the Sabbath, that's an interesting issue that you're bringing to me here. He might say, it's not in the text, if that works for you, it works for you. But he says, but there are other ways as well. So the second question for you to consider is this. Um, what extra rules to appear extra spiritual might we face today? Let's chuck in one story. Um, uh, oh, I don't know, 30 years ago, I led to faith in Jesus, a wonderful um, Glaswegian uh, heroin addict who'd been a heroin addict for about 14 years and he was 30 when I met him, so since he was 16. 
And uh, he'd reached the stage where he knew he had to change his life, and I was working as a chaplain with a dr drug addiction rehab. So I, I sat down with Ray on a number of occasions, we met up several times, and we talked about Jesus. And uh, uh, there were some things that he found a little bit tricky, but the basics of God loving him and knowing he'd loused up his life and Jesus had died for him, uh, that, that was all great. And so I said to him, would you like to make your decision to be a follower of Jesus? He said, yes, yes. Next week, somebody found out that I had not cleared with him that he believed in the virgin birth. And for the people who were asking this question, who were leaders of the charity that I was working for, it was absolutely critical. Uh, it was so critical that anyone coming to faith had to believe in the virgin birth that they asked me to immediately give my notice and resign from the work. Uh, because in their view, if I had not extracted from him belief in the virgin birth, therefore he wasn't fully persuaded of the deity of Jesus, therefore his salvation was in doubt. Think of another example. Um, I'm involved in something at Uwine called Just Looking. I'm looking for volunteers, by the way, if you're apologetically minded. Um, and and there, for, for about 20 years, I've been meeting with people for the two weeks of Uwine who've been dragged in by uh, a believing partner but don't believe themselves. And they choose the topic. It's not quite the same as Alpha. They choose the topic, and the next day I teach it. And one day they said to me, could you tomorrow uh, teach us on the minimum you have to believe to be a follower of Jesus? So I thought, symbols, right. Uh, so I slaved over a hot la la laptop for the evening before and, and created the talk and uh, went th through it. And, and at the end, there was a woman there weeping. She said, but I believe all that. What's to stop me giving my life to Jesus now? I've been going around all these other questions for six years, but everything you've said, I believe. And she gave her life to Jesus. Um, the following year, I did the same teaching, and somebody looked at me in shock at the end and said, you mean I don't have to be homophobic to follow Jesus? And she gave her life to Jesus as well. So, three minutes conversation, it's better than listening to me. Uh, what extra rules to appear extra spiritual might we face today? How do you respond to them? With love. Over to you. Okay. Now, of course, the things that we're addressing this evening could actually be important for some of you who are here. And it might be there's somebody here who's been told you'll never be good enough to be a Christian, or who's been told since they were a child you are just useless. There might be somebody um, here uh, who actually already believes enough to make a decision to follow Jesus. But one of your well-meaning Christian friends is giving you extra and um, unnecessary hoops to jump through. And something that's well worth doing as homework is, suppose somebody jumps out in front of you on your way home and says to you, what do I have to do to be saved? Actually, I might go and hide and do it just to scare you. Um, but if some, somebody says to you, what do I have to do to be saved? Do you have an answer? And I do. God loves you more than you can possibly imagine. You have fallen short of everything you know in your heart you could be. And that's damaged your relationship with God. The death and resurrection of, of Jesus is there as God's way of bringing you back into relationship with him. It's all for free, but you have to choose to accept that and to do it.
Now, you might not agree with what I'm saying. You might want to add things or take them away, but to have something to say would be useful. Thirdly, and we're on the home straight, which is quite remarkable for a Baptist preacher, and that is the third uh, or the last story which tells us how Jesus explains the inspiration for inclusion. And once again, I have scoured the theological annals to find something with depth, meaning, and impact for you. Here we go. On another Sabbath day, a man with a deformed right hand was in the synagogue while Jesus was teaching. The teachers of religious law and the Pharisees watched closely to see whether Jesus would heal the man on the Sabbath. Because they were eager to find some legal charge to bring against him. But Jesus knew their thoughts. He said to the man with the deformed hand, Come and stand here where everyone can see. So the man came forward. Then Jesus said to his critics, I have a question for you. Is it legal to do good deeds on the Sabbath? Or is it a day for doing harm? Is this a day to save life? Or to destroy it? He looked around again. One by one. And then said to the man, Reach out your hand. The man reached out his hand, and it became normal again. At this, the enemies of Jesus were wild with rage and began to discuss what to do with him. Just notice in passing with that story, what does Jesus not ask before he ministers healing? He does not say, do you believe that God is going to heal you? Uh, he does not extract a confession of faith. He, he simply brings the grace and mercy of God to somebody who is suffering and in need. And the scholars point out to us that uh, when somebody uh, has that sort of uh, disability in the time of Jesus, uh, there's no state help. So you're not only talking about a physical restoration, but you're talking about um, being welcomed back into society because so many people think that if you have a disability in those days, if you have a disability, it's a sign of God's displeasure. And uh, it gives you an income. It has an economic benefit to it. So Jesus comes and meets the person in that situation with grace. So the story is a simple one. Jesus is saying, are you going to try and stick to exactly what it is that the law requires, or are you going to exercise love 
towards somebody who's in need. You might think, are you going to do what is expected of you in a church environment? Or are you going to move away from that to somebody who needs the grace and compassion of God? Uh, Jesus faces conflict from critical hearts. Uh, it has been the case for many, many years, back to the time of Jesus and before, that religiously-minded people sometimes try to make themselves feel more important by putting down people who've not achieved as much in the things that the person involved thinks they're particularly good at. And they are motivated because they have had a way of doing things for a long time. They have a set of rules which they are comfortable with. And Jesus is threatening their comfort levels by changing that set of rules. And so into that situation, here comes Jesus with some radical inclusion. Now, just notice that when you step away from the accepted script of what should happen in a religious environment and act with compassion, uh, people can get cross. Uh, I was, uh, quite a number of years ago, called to be senior pastor of one of the largest Baptist churches in the country. It's a clerical error of some sort. But uh, they, they invited me there, and I think it was the second Sunday when I was preaching, um, a very respectable um, church in quite a poor area, uh, because things had changed over the hundreds of years it had been there. Um, I, I'd done my preach, and yeah, it was back in the days when you had to wear a suit, and Actually, I'll tell you one lovely thing about that church that might make some of you laugh. They did have modern worship songs, but they had to be chosen a week before, and the acetates for them were kept locked with chains around them, uh, so that if anyone wanted to sing a different worship song, you would have to go and find the senior worship leader who owned, had the only key to the padlock uh, to get the worship song out for you to be able to do something different. And so somebody once said to me, I, I resigned after three years, just because the Lord said resign, so I resigned. And um, somebody said to me, this is a church where uh, the work of the Spirit is only acceptable between consenting adults in private, which was a little bit unfair, but, but an interesting observation. Anyway, second Sunday, I'm there at the door shaking hands with people, and a broken couple are about 50 yards away from me, uh, struggling with loads of cheap shopping in carrier bags that are falling apart, and obviously the worst for wear, and, and in need of some love from Jesus. So uh, I went over to them, not really noticing that, that a little queue of respectable worshippers was waiting to shake hands with the pastor and say glibly how much they enjoyed the service. But that day I made some enemies with whom I was never able to find reconciliation because their understanding of the rules were they pay the senior pastor's salary and he is there as their personal chaplain. And if he's going to go off the leash and start talking to common people about Jesus, he needs to put the time in advance. So I didn't stay. Um, Jesus, to this, brings radical inclusion. Your last bit of homework and then Gareth's going to bring us back and... I, I, 
said to Gareth he'd have to stay awake because I'm relying on him uh, to be able to listen to what the Holy Spirit is telling us to do next. I've done my bit. And look at him, his eyes are still wide awake. He's doing, doing, doing very well. So let me just be a little bit provocative with this last example. Um, I've spent more than 10 years building close friendships with a number of gay Christians and trying to listen to them about their situation, to understand them and to love them. And, um, and now when I meet one or two of my male gay Christian friends, it's a no-holds-barred man-hug. There's, there's no hating the sin and loving the sinner. Because I know that my gay friends are deeply, deeply wounded by that language. And I was also, in some of my studying recently, I, I read that um, gay men and women have a far higher incidence of mental illness than straight men and women. Uh, gay men and women have a far higher rate of suicide than straight men and women um, because of the pressures they encounter and experience from society. So if you want something to wrestle with the question, which laws might get in the way of love today, you may well believe that... Um, same-sex attraction sexual acts are simply wrong. And that is a legitimate interpretation of Scripture. But if you believe that, how can you act with absolute love towards a gay man or a gay woman without hurting them? If you get the answer, I'd, I'd love to know, and so would many more pastors. Which laws might get in the way of love today? Three minutes, and then we're landing. Father God, thank you that while we were still so far away from you, uh, living lives that were a disappointment to ourselves and to you, you took action in Jesus that we might be included. Not because we deserve it, but because your love and your grace is so extraordinarily great. Father, thank you for that action for us. Help us by your spirit to carry just as inclusive an offer of your love to those whom we will meet in the coming weeks and days. In Jesus' name, amen.